This is School Nursing Uncovered, a podcast for school nurses by school nurses. Brought to you by the NHS team behind the Chat Health Service, partnering with the school and the Public Health Nurses Association. Hello and welcome to School Nursing Uncovered. I'm Sharon White and I'm the CEO of the School and Public Health Nurses Association, also known as SAFNA. During this first series, we're uncovering challenges and issues affecting children, young people and families across the UK, such as the role of the school nurse, mental health, vaping, safeguarding and gender identity. And today we're talking about safeguarding. And with me, I have three school nurses, Selena, Susie and Sam, who will do a little bit of brief introduction. My name's Sam Parry. I'm a specialist community public health nursing senior lecturer at Birmingham City University. And I've been a school nurse um, for just over 10 years now. I'm Susie Scales, clinical lead for school nursing in Derby City. I've been in school nursing far too many years. Um, uh, Qualified in 2003, I think it was. So yeah, it's 20 years since I qualified, but I've been in school nursing far before that. Thanks, Susie and Selena. Hi, I'm Selena Brash and I'm um, a specialist community public health nurse um, and a clinical team lead. And for the trust I work for, I also lead on the um, chat health. Fantastic. So we're here to talk about uh, a subject close to all school nurses' hearts in terms of safeguarding. And I guess the the first bit of discussion would be about what is the Healthy Child Programme telling us? What what is it we should be doing in safeguarding? What is it as specialist community public health nurses, school nurses, we should be doing? What's our role? It underpins everything we do. That's what it says in the Healthy Child Programme. It underpins everything we do, but that doesn't define all we should do, should I say. Also, I think it's to ensure that we listen to the voice of the child. Obviously, we, from what the child is saying, we shape our services accordingly. I think it's about being responsive to the needs of the child. So it's about health assessing those that, um, you know, there might be safeguarding issues. So assessing them, looking at early help as well. So early assessment and then responding to those needs appropriately, referrals, signposting, health promotion work. Why a school nurse then? What is it? What is it from school nursing that we bring to safeguarding? I think professional curiosity for me. It's our ability to communicate. I think we are specialist practitioners and I think as part of that specialist role, it's about how we communicate with people from different communities, different backgrounds. It's about how we have the needs to how we have the ability to assess individuals, their family situations, have an understanding of that and be able to respond appropriately to it. We also have that public health, you know, we're specialist community public health nurses at the end of the day. So public health, health promotion has to come with that for me. Why school nurses? We cover many aspects of of um, public health and that's not just for the children but the families as a whole which is important for the whole of the dynamics in the family. School nurses are as we spoke about in another podcast um, you know we are the bridge between health education and social care and we do have an input to role and a, and a role to play in safeguarding we're not the only ones and I think that um, safeguarding we ha- we definitely do have a role in safeguarding but uh, getting it right early and getting in early to stop it becoming such a big problem. There are some cases that we still need to be involved in at, at the pointy end, as, as it said recently in your conference, um, you know, get involved in the pointy end. But that's not to say that we need to be there for 
every child because there is a large health system out there that there are many people that could have a role in the health needs assessment for the child under safeguarding. Absolutely. And I think that's the nub of the conversation, isn't mm. it? It's about we do have the evidence, the research, the frameworks um, in the Healthy Child Programme and the revised schedule of interventions. And you're absolutely right that safeguarding runs right throughout every aspect of the role of a school nurse. But also within the Healthy Child Programme, it is very clear that we are leaders of the Healthy Child Programme, not necessarily the doers, which is what you were talking about, Susie. So absolutely a key role and definitely the early help, the prevention is critical. But there is a whole other children's workforce out there that often are better placed than us. You know, we, we talked about that unique position of being that bridge, particularly from school and home. And the only universal health service available to school-aged children is the other USP. And that is key, isn't it? And you talked about listening to the voice of the child. You know, who better than somebody who's built up that trust in rapport with a young person to facilitate those really hard conversations from from those children and, and young people. But critically, it is about right person right job, right time. And um, I talked earlier in one of the other podcasts of being a very mature school nurse, Susie, and I think you and I probably are similar ill. But we used to talk about early help as uh, primary, secondary and tertiary. And I did the school nursing certificate back in 1919. I remember that being taught. And I think we probably use different language now. Mm. But what that You said this uh, earlier, Sam. Early help isn't just not to two, not to five, or at the beginning of something. It's right across the life course of a child. And when we were gifted the early help concept, it was never meant to be early life. Mm. It was meant to be about intervening at the earliest point. But actually before then, so when we used to talk about primary prevention, it is the health education, it Mm. is the health promotion. Uh, We were talking earlier in preparation for this, you know, as a school nurse of your I was in every reception class. I saw the parents before the children came into school and they knew what safeguarding and child protection was and they knew the school nurse's role. And the children in reception knew what my role was and they knew about things such as um, safe touch, for example, it would be called now, or that I'm a girl, you're a boy, this is what we do which is okay and this is what we do that isn't okay. Health promotion and health education in the years of yore, we would gift that health literacy Mm. to those children, young people, to schools and to parents very early on. So you're absolutely right, uh, Sam, in terms of safeguarding goes, runs throughout as a theme, but also across the whole trajectory. And the nub of it is the early help and and prevention. So thank you for that. Tell me what's going on out there um, in practice. What are you seeing from your students, Sam? What are you seeing from your staff, Susie and Selena? What's happening? I think from students, it's very mixed. Um, You know, I work with students who are from six or seven different trusts across the UK. So how their service looks and how it responds to safeguarding is very different in all of them. And that provides us with some really interesting conversations in lectures from them about what their involvement is and, and how they have a role within safeguarding. 
Um, we've got trusts who, you know, students that when they go out on their safeguarding placement, they, they're seeing, you know, sitting in two initial child protection case conferences a week. And we've got others that I've seen two in, in six weeks. So it's very different depending upon which trust they're from and how they're responding to it. And I think that's really interesting. But I think we see we do see changes within those trusts as well. So student previous students that didn't have the same experiences, and maybe that's because of the responding to incidents that have happened within those trusts and those areas. And I think you make a really good point again, Sam, about regional variation. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing from a Safna point of view, and I'm sure we've got it within the room, is that we don't have one solid approach. We don't appear to have one core offer to safeguarding and if we think about the statutory guidance working together to safeguard children if we think about all the high profile dreadful sad and tragic cases it begs for consistency doesn't it Mm -hmm. it begs for structure and we know we get regional variation often linked to funding is that the best we should be doing around safeguarding so I think you're right safeguard uh, Sam from your students perspective you will see that in variation coming back to you and that bears out what we've found so what are you two seeing in practice what's going on Selena? In the area where I work um, I would definitely say that safeguarding has increased we're still very heavily involved in in safeguarding and it does take up a lot of our time unfortunately and we are looking at ways of you know reducing that and stepping back a bit from the safeguarding role and letting other partners and, and agencies you know take take more of a role in it it's quite an affluent area But again, we've seen a massive rise in the amount of safeguarding um, that's coming through for our young people and our families. And we have early intervention as well. So we have our early help hubs, which we we attend weekly and we provide the health information on the families to support the holistic um, assessment and approach to how you know they're going to support that family but yes I think since dare I say it COVID definitely there's been a very big rise especially in neglect cases we have found. Yeah I think you do need to say COVID because we were again we were having these conversations and certainly from a UK perspective from SAFNA what we're hearing in our regular webinars where we connect with local practitioners is not just the number but the complexity as well, the significant rising cases. And I suspect there's many stories still yet to be told by our children and young people that happened during during COVID and the collateral damage that that's left them. Can I just ask you, Selena, when you talk about safeguarding and you talk about your role in safeguarding and you just talked about you're starting to review what you're doing and maybe get other professionals to be more involved than they were. Are you talking about meetings particularly? Um, yes, meetings particularly. We, yeah. we attend a lot of meetings okay. for safeguarding yeah. and it does take up a lot of our, our time. Yes, yes. So you're reviewing that at the moment Yes, with an eye to who is the, you know, back to what we said earlier, right person, right job, right time. Yeah. So who is the most appropriate professional um, to attend that meeting and represent the needs of that family best? Yeah. In, um, I think I could be a little bit wrong. I'm trying to think of the year. Susie, you might remember when the Children's Commissioner Anne Longfield did the lightning review of school nurse certainly this decade but we helped Anne do that review and it it indicated something like 80% of a school nurse's time was spent on bureaucratic functions around safeguarding so you know we had the information back then and from a UK perspective we've still got a challenge on our hands around what is being asked of us 
and required of us in terms of the bureaucratic function, which is what Anne named it in her her report. Are those conversations going positively, Selena? Yeah, they're definitely going positively. We're reviewing how much time we spend on safeguarding. So that's writing the reports, the administration side, attending the meetings, writing them up. So at the moment, we're collecting all of that data to present it to say, you know, actually, this is the percentage of time for each case or each child for a safeguarding meeting. Sure, sure. And the impact, of course, you know, you need to have a look at what was the impact of your intervention, um, which will be part of that whole scoping, won't it? Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. Susie, what's going on for you? (laughs) Yeah, I've had this conversation a couple of times today with various people outside of the podcast as well as in it. Um, We've managed to claw back our public health role where we are. Um, So we are not, for the better way of putting it, bums on seats in a conference. We do that assessment um, before the initial assessment. And then if need be, we we don't go. Um, There's some we do. You know, if there is a need for us to go, then we will go. Um, But that doesn't take away from our work that we do prior to it going. I think sometimes the hard piece of work is before they go to conference. You know, once you've got all the other professionals involved, it's almost a bit easier. It's all that stuff before when you're supporting the young person and you know you're getting their trust to disclose what's going on in their lives um so i think in some ways that's the early help as well you know you're helping them to come out with their concerns and worries um actually out in practice i think we mentioned covid a lot but i think the cost of living is having such a big impact on our kids at the moment indeed the queues around the blocks we're seeing for food banks is is heartbreaking you know that we've got kids that you know they're being privatized by their parents but you know they are really struggling Mm -hmm. and you know the schools are doing what they can but Mm -hmm. it is that i think the cost of living more maybe now than the the pandemic is having a big impact on our kids yeah it's i think it's a combination of a a a number of factors isn't it you know we've also got a a, a huge war going on you know there's a lot of worries for us as adults never mind um for our our children and certainly the state of the happiness of children's health from the Royal College of Child and Paediatrics doesn't make for no. good reading. Our children in England are among some of the most unhappiest in this hemisphere and that you know that has to bring some challenge back to us and our decision makers around what is it that we're not doing that other countries are and some of these countries are quite poor countries. Remember we're still the fifth if not the fourth richest country across the globe. So what is it that we need to learn from some of our comparable countries and colleagues that makes their children happier? I think there's an awful lot on our children's shoulders. Um, And back to your point, Selena, so well made about the voice of the child. You know, do we really listen? Do we really hear? And then what do we do with it? Mm. And school nurses are brilliant at that, in my experience. Susie, you said you're obviously going through a, a radical transformation in your service at the moment. And we've talked about some of the systems and processes you put in place but you talked about um, clawing back your public health role so tell us a little bit about that what's the you know the public health role of safeguarding tell me a little bit more yeah so um, 18 months ago um, with permission from our commissioner who wanted you know, they were at the end of the day commissioner of public health service and not a safeguarding team we worked hard to change that so that we weren't the nominated health person on the on around the table um, and other people have had to get involved and so far it's going okay we've had a few bumps in the road but we've clawed so that we can get that early help you know we we are asking questionnaires in 
year six reception and in year nine so that we can see what the flags are early and get in there early. You know, we're there and um, we've found so many disclosures from earlier on so that we can be up there and putting some input in with, with schools to, you know, stop the bullying, stop the isolation of children. You know, because families are being pulled to go and work all sorts of hours. You know, we've, we've found some children that are being left alone all overnight and things like that. But So we're getting in early and early helping safeguarding so we can put that input before it has to go to safeguarding. Of course, it might need to go, but, you know, hopefully stop it before it needs to go there. Absolutely. And that, that you know, when we think about school nursing and I'm not minimising our contribution, but brief intervention. Mm. We are so skilled, you know, motivational interviewing, brief intervention, whatever else we've got in our toolkit, whether that be a parenting course or whether it be making every contact count or whatever. We are so good at assessing with those specialist skills and then coming up with the goods to respond. So it's great to hear you talking about some of the systems and processes you've got, but also that evidence for the earliest possible help breaking that that cycle that often a lot of our children and young people end up being being caught in. So the media are very good at telling us around child sexual exploitation and grooming and lots of other complexities going on for our children. And we certainly know um, that child sexual exploitation, child exploitation, criminal exploitation is on the rise. What are you seeing in practice? What are you hearing from practitioners? Yeah, a lot of our students have, have definitely come across that. They've identified the signs of grooming. It's something that they're, they're they're very familiar with from practice, um, having been involved in cases where they've, they've been utilising child sexual exploitation checklists to really be able to assess if, if this is a young person sat in front of them that might be experiencing some of those things. So the it's definitely something that's there. And I think as a school nurse, we've got a real good awareness of that, but also an awareness of, of you know, how that's going to impact them in the and their life course as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just in the here and now, it's how we apply that to their their future as well to mm-hmm. try and, and get implement things earlier so that it doesn't have such a detrimental impact upon their life course. Mm-hmm. Students are very aware of that. And I think things like utilising things like adverse childhood experiences, having that awareness of ACEs. We've had students that have gone back into practice and, you know, actually trained the rest of their workforce in what they've learned around ACEs because they can see how how beneficial is for them to know when they're working with so many cases of child sexual exploitation, grooming, um, criminal exploitation. So many areas reporting an increase in it and seeing a lot of it. Thanks, Sam. We've got, uh, we have quite a lot of um, young people that go missing, you know, that their frequencies, you know, increases in frequency. And then you find that they've, you know, they've been involved in criminality. We have a meeting which occurs every month. um, And it's a multidisciplinary meeting, which looks at the child sexual exploitation, the missing, the exploited and that's all sort of you know police social services health and we all get together and share all the information what their score is in their serif that's very useful so you can sort of you know have a bit of an idea of those in your area that are much more at risk Um, and then alongside that we have a a local partnership um, meeting so it could be you know like groups of young people at the local train station and then names will come up so you can speak about different people that's quite a good meeting as well that sort of ties in with getting to know your area and what's happening in your area you know and what's being seen and families, you know, will crop up time and time again. Mm-hmm. So Vulnerable good models families. of uh, multi-agency working. Yeah. What's a serif, Selena? Um, it's the um, the sexual exploitation score. So it's a toolkit. Yes. To to give them the score of of how high they would rate on being at risk. Sure. Sure. 
Thank you. It sounds like some great practice going on. Have you seen any benefits? Definitely, because lots of things are put into place for these young people. Um, so it might be the youth offending team. Mm-hmm. It might be um, domestic abuse services. Police will go into schools or you'd have the local community safety officer would go into schools or go and do home visits and do some education. Back to right person, right job, right time. And I think, you know, we have got a lot of resources at our fingertips. It's about having those conversations. And, and knowing and being invited to the table and if not bringing up your own chair to say as school nurses and especially as community public health nurses we've got a lot to offer here. Susie? Yeah I think um, in particular a, a, a bit like Sam was saying you know that every child we have contact with we, we've become quite skilled at answering those questions to try and get in early to you know stop it becoming. My my big concern and worry is those children like you said that are, that are missing. Yes. Um, the elective home educated. Yes. You, you know those ones that are oh where, where are they? Who who have got them and who, you know, the looked after children that are going missing from their placements, those children that are missing from schools and we're not quite sure. We've got a lot of children that are invisible mm-hmm. and, and aren't under and they're the ones that worry me the most. Mm-hmm. How can we get a foot in the door of those places or go find them? And, and I think that that's, that's the bit that worries me um, more now than ever. Whereas I think those that we can get in early with, you know, and talk about the sexual exploitation, you know, when we're doing the C card or, you know, or we, you know, having those talks in school we've got we've got that on our radar as school nurses that we can there but it's those that we've got no 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 access to they're the ones I would share your concern and certainly Dame Rachel D'Souza, the current Children's Commissioner, spoke at our conference and covered that significantly. Um, And it's certainly high on her agenda and on the political agenda. But, you know, we have seen a significant increase in children not attending school. And it is the invisible, the unheard and the unseen. You know, I don't want to hark back to the days of yore, but we used to actually pound the streets with our Mm. police colleagues uh, in days of yore. Um, We used to, you know... Picking up on what you said, Selena, put in those interventions for the children that were missing and make it our business to know our local community. And you talked about the local train station. You know your hotspots, don't you? Mm-hmm. You know, if you know your community has a school nurse who's profiling her area, she knows her, she knows her joint strategic needs assessment. She knows how that applies to her local community, then to a school and then to individual families. And you also said, interestingly, families that come up again. And I think it's a real challenge for us, isn't it, Susie, now that's a lot of families that are not on our radar. Mm-hmm that we don't know about. What can we do about it? What can we practically do about our missing children? Summer holiday, we've just said that. We've, I've got a list of children that are missing from education. They should be there, but they're not there. And, you know, we've got some a very deprived city that, you know, we've got multi-occupancy houses that, we, you know, let's let's go and be curious. Let's go knock on the door. Yeah. Um, find out about them, you know. And we've got a great service in our area for our asylum-seeking families and you our do. hotels. You do. And, um, you know, so it's being curious about what their needs are and putting the services there where they need them. But it's also then keeping hold of them once they're out of the secure hotel and where they're going and what's happening to them then because that's when they become vulnerable when we haven't got sight of them anymore as long as they've got other services involved that's fine but we've got lots that aren't and you know we've got children flying in and out that you can't can't keep track of as well as all those that are now elective home educated because the needs changed during covid and we've yes. got so increasing tenfold the numbers yet they were quite vulnerable children prior to the covid and because 
they don't feel comfortable putting them back into education with many people or they're not having their needs met because of their special education needs, for example. They've opted in. They're quite vulnerable children that are now at home and have got no access to any of those services. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, borne out what we're seeing across mm-hmm. the UK is that there's a multitude of reasons why a lot of children haven't returned. And it's very, very challenging when services have not perhaps been as resourced as well as they should be for us to do what we do well. Mm. So, you know, you talked about this at the beginning, Sam, about professional curiosity. Mm. You know, what does that mean? Well, in my mind, you know, it means going the extra yard, doesn't it? The extra mile. And what is it we can do realistically and practically within the resources we've got? And again, back to your point, Selena, it is about using the wider assets and having really good communication channels between those agencies and voluntary sector as well as statutory sector. And also, like you said, Susie, you've obviously released some capacity back into your service through your changes, but actually knocking on the door. You know, if you think about the unique role of school nursing, who else does home visiting for a school-aged child? And is that link between school, but also to other to other agencies and yeah it it is a real challenge for us all at the moment has anybody got any innovation I mean certainly your work on asylum seekers Susie is is now known about isn't it and it's a real good exemplar of health visitors school nurses and other community nurses are getting down and dirty really for want of a a better phrase and being co-located where the families are but yeah mobility and mortality of our families is an additional challenge isn't it any examples of good practice that we can think of anything that's been shared additional to that we go into our refuges so we do that regularly so weekly fortnightly um, we have contact with uh, the refuges we go in visit pick up any new families we have a like a folder within the refuge which has got lots of information on local health services within the area where they can sign up for a dentist or the doctor or where they can seek health and support so we have the health visitor and the school nurse that, you know, that will go in regularly and pick up those new families, ensure that, you know, they've got their education sorted and their health sorted, be a general support and a point of contact for them. And if they don't want, you know, if the family particularly doesn't want us to go out and see them in the refuge, then they can come in and see us at our base of work and um, we can see them there. Great. And I mean, it links very similar to your work with asylum seekers, doesn't it, Susie? It's a very similar model. So that core offer, universal offer to all children and young people, school aged, wherever they might be. And certainly, again, from a SAFNA point of view, we've seen changes in commissioning. And this isn't a blame situation. It is a, it's, it's a, it's a difficult financial landscape we're in where service specifications are excluding those children that are not attending school. And we have seen this a number of times and we do bring challenge and we do work very closely with our colleagues at the Association of Directors of Public Health and with the local government association and with the commissioners themselves and others to try and keep informing them of the requirements and our statutory requirements as, as public health nurses and the, the Healthy Child Programme and the best practice and best guidance. But these are tough times and tough decisions are made. And unfortunately, it's our most vulnerable, isn't it, that often suffer as a consequence. I mean, there is some other great practice going on and, and, and some of it makes me smile because, again, I'm going to say I'm quite a mature school nurse. Simple strategies where there's really good information sharing of 
which children are not in school. So actually you're all working from the same accurate, up-to-date information. So I know an area who, since they instilled that process, are now seeing some quick wins and some not so quick wins, but what they are able to do is be the key advocate for some of those children. So back to your point, Susie, there are some children not back in school because the parents don't feel the schools can any longer meet their needs or they're really concerned about their COVID vulnerability and exposure. So what the, this area is seeing is where the school nurse can be the advocate and the bridge where communications have perhaps broken down, where parents have perhaps been taken down legal routes for fines for non-attendance, where children perhaps with special educational needs may not be catered for correctly at school, but what else can they do in an outreach fashion? So beginning to see some small wins, huge wins for some of the children, not necessarily getting the children back to school in all cases, but actually able to assess their health and well-being and help put services in place. So there are some good exemplars of practice emerging But, you know, it is very, very challenging, isn't it? I want to pick up on another point, Sam, and this came up in a podcast earlier about us keeping pace with changes of society and cultures and students, student specialist community public health nurses being the ambassadors that are now coming back out from their Skiffen courses and being the foot soldiers. Mm. So we were talking in a previous podcast about gender LGBT. Yeah. And some of the work that's come out of our Scuffin students this year, and probably in previous years, but we've had a keen eye on it this year because of the student uh, Scuffin awards that we launched. Phenomenal work coming out from our Scuffin students. And we were saying how it's very difficult to keep pace with changes in society. And, you know, we've always had children missing from school, haven't we? But I don't think we've seen it at this level, Susie, would you think? No, I don't think it, I, yeah. I, I don't think it has yeah. in all the years I have. But I also think that systems making it more difficult, yeah. you know, and things that have been put in place to stop us sharing information. Yes. That It's not about the willingness to go out and do the work. It's about the systems allowing us to do that work. Yes. And I think that that's the big hurdle we have to get over. And so back to students as foot soldiers then, Sam. Yeah. I th- you know, students have got great ideas. They're very innovative. They're very passionate. They are taking on that learning to look at the evidence base, to go out and community profile their areas, really look at what's going on, what's happening within society. And I think it's part of that that drives that. So them coming in and, and looking at what can we do differently here when they go into their practice areas and start looking at that and what can they do to help those children who aren't in educational establishments, schools, for example, you know, how can they support them better? They come up with some really good and unique ideas. So yeah, I think we need to embrace that. We need to encourage more of our SCUPAN students to get involved because it's exciting to see what they come up with and, you know, no idea is a silly idea or always saying that you know let's work with it when we think about children that are missing in schools I think because we're quite commonly seen as school nurses we're based in schools we deal with people who attend schools we're school age nurses anybody who is of school age that's who we work with whether they're in school or not in school point well made Summer is about the school pop when we talk school population I think there is a misconception yeah. sometimes that we're talking about the kids who attend school 
it is all of the, the community, the parents, the teachers, the local community. But then when we're thinking about children, it's about the children who should be at school, who are yeah. eligible for education. But thinking about your student you talked about earlier, taking yeah. out training to her service around adverse childhood mm. experiences. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, I mean, let's face it, our students have got time out to think haven't they and they've got time out to reflect and wouldn't we all love that because if we get off the hamster wheel for five minutes just look what we can do so you know notwithstanding that you know thinking about the previous podcast and what you've just said about that student I think there's an openness isn't there for us all to learn and share and but also the change in sands you know, particularly we were talking about LGBT earlier and we can't keep up at the moment, actually. And we're learning as much from children and young people as we are from our our younger population. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of safeguarding, our students, Giffins have got masses yeah. to offer, haven't they? Absolutely, yeah. And get away with asking those awkward questions. Susie, you talked earlier about processes and systems getting in the way. Tell me, tell us a little bit more. Allowing the systems to talk to each other. And even if you're on the same system, opening them up to be able to communicate between them. You're talking about IT systems. Yes, IT yeah. systems, you know, and uh, and I think it's too easy to use GDPR to stop you from communicating those. Whereas, you know, we were all there to safeguard these children and it's about sharing the information to enable us to do that. And I think that sometimes there are barriers put in place to stop you doing that. So I've got a little bit of good news for you. So Safna are a standing member of the NHS Safeguarding Collaborative uh, that brings together the leaders across the system. And we're doing a piece of work at the moment with our fantastic GP colleagues who are currently writing a seven-minute briefing around information sharing, particularly around school-aged children, because we've had a number of cases evidenced to us through local practitioner intelligence that actually is not working in the best interest of the child. It's not about, I think people want to work in the best interest, but information sharing is becoming a barrier. Do you think we've got it the balance wrong, Selena? Do you think when we're I think I think we have, but I think it's improving. I know for the trust I'm in at the moment, we've just been able to have like a drop zone within our system. So it goes straight through to the GP service where the one we had before it wasn't. They had to look for it, um, whereas this one goes into their inbox and, you know, they, they can see it. So that's been really... It's um, a drop, drop zone. Drop zone, it's yeah. called, from our system. Yeah, so that's been really good you know, way to be able to communicate with the GPs um, much easier. And we've also now got GP Connect on the system. So before we were able to see the basics on there, so the medication, the immunisations, but we weren't able to see the consultations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, you know, if they went in and were prescribed antibiotics or a urine infection or something, um, we, we couldn't see that. But now we can, so we can see the consultation and we can see much more detail. So that makes, you know, it much easier for us to... Wow. To get some information without having to go through, you know, to the GPs and we put, you know, we'd ring the GP and they say, OK, well, we'll give you a, a phone appointment in a week's time. But we can now just look on the records and it's it's so much easier for us. I can feel some ongoing conversations are going to happen after this podcast, <laughs> um, Selena, because that sounds phenomenal. Yeah. And we're also going to shortly, hopefully, because our trusts are merging, um, we're also going to be able to see the um, child mental health notes as well, especially so for 
chat health if we're dealing with a young person and we know what their name and their details are and then we can see if they've already got CAMS involvement or not and then you know we can liaise with the CAMS worker much easier because we can see what they're doing and then we can support better on on the chat health. Yeah it's, it seems to me I mean we used to have some of those processes in place where I worked in school nursing for many many years and then we seemed to and that was when it was paper <laughs> and conversational and telephone calls and then I think we, we have seen a shift, haven't we? And certainly our leaders in NHS England safeguarding would say they know of no cases where a health professional has ever been successfully prosecuted for sharing information in the best interest of the child. But I do think there's still a big nervousness, and I think that's what you're referring to, Susie, about getting that right. And you're right about GDPR. I think that brought an added layer um, and certainly we've seen that from uh, school nursing, local practitioner intelligence, that sometimes that isn't used positively. Or people get tied up in knots, mm. don't they? You know, bureaucratic knots around it. We need to be brave and courageous, don't we? And I can, you know, I can sense the frustration with these nods <laughs> in the room. And certainly through Safna, you can bring issues like this. And we do have that um, opportunity to raise the issues and we are like you Selena seeing some improvements mm -hmm. happening um, you know the child protection information system that was implemented during Covid we were very much behind supporting that and also um, we've got some good news to share with our special interest group next week for nurses based in educational settings around having access to NHS mail so when we think about optimum safeguarding of our children and young people and we think of other nurses working with school-aged children we've got about 5,000 of a workforce in the independent schools we've got a growing workforce of schools employing their own nurses whether they're school nurses or not that's a whole other issue we've got um, private uh, provisions so such as um, specialist schools for children with autism with nurses based in so we've got a whole raft of of an other workforce um, who haven't had thus far access to NHS mail and we've been championing that for maybe a decade uh, and those efforts are now coming to fruition so we and I'm talking about the royal we sat here but also the workforce of school nursing across the UK can and do impact changes and we were talking earlier about you know be, being uh, professionally curious but that has to come with courage and bravery and you know you're beginning to reap benefits that I've no doubt Selena you were uh, key to bringing about am I right? Yeah I mean you know it has been great and um, it's it's improved our work massively really and our communications with other services mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of safeguarding of children you know, if we look at the serious case reviews repeatedly, yeah. repeatedly, information sharing is mentioned, referenced and, you know, elevated and escalated. And it's a continuous journey of improvement, isn't it? Um, but we've got to be brave enough to challenge those barriers that are in place. So you talked about um, stepping back, Susie, I'm going to come back to that before we finish, because it's um, something really significant for the workforce at the moment. And you're obviously in the process, Selena, and you're hearing the regional variation, Sam. What is it we what are the key messages here for those that are listening to the podcast around being clear about what is and what isn't our role in safeguarding? And to paraphrase Greg Fell, who spoke at our conference last week, where do we bring 
the best added value to that child and family. What are the messages that we want to share around those changes you've brought about? We definitely shouldn't be a bottom on a seat to make a conference call. That isn't our role. We are public health nurses. That is where we can make the most difference. Um, getting in there early, making the changes early. Although we still have a role in safeguarding, but that needs to be proportional to the right person for the right job, as you, you've you said a few times, you know, that it's, it's not a school nurse or the school nursing team. And we're not there to be a bottom on a seat in a conference room. I mean, I think the message would be, I think, you know, as Susie says, you know, we're, we're not there just to, to make up the numbers, but I think our role would be, you know, definitely in the holistic assessment of the, the child to do a health needs assessment and establish if there is a role I think that is really important to meet the child for them to know that we're there and they can contact us and you know use use us as a resource because I think you know a lot of these families probably haven't even heard of us or, or know what we do so I think that's a really good time to introduce ourselves and let them know you know that we're there and obviously do that holistic assessment but not necessarily to you know to attend the conference if there isn't a health need once that's been established. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking about and we talked about this in a previous podcast as well there's been changes in the urgent redesign of how we delivered our services during COVID and our digital offer has really strengthened um, to our children, young people and families. What about the digital offer and safeguarding? So I know in your area, uh, Susie, use electronic health needs assessment forms. How has that helped safeguarding? Is it a positive? Is it a benefit? Most definitely a positive. Yeah. We found out, We've, as I said, we've only been doing it 18 months, but we found out in the last year so much need early on from the voice of the child. They've told us what's concerning them, what's worrying them, and it's allowed us to do that work with them, with education, to help them. We've got in there really early before it's become a, you know, a serious case revoy or something's happened to them. So, yeah, the electronic questionnaire has been there and then we've been able to put something in on the day mm-hmm. that we found out about it. But we've also got, you know, chat health, you know, that they come through with their concerns and not always just for our area. But, you know, that we've, we've had some cases, you know, that have come through that are from other areas, but we've been able to make sure they've been safely transferred over. Yes. If they haven't been pulled up by a chat health in that area, you know, yes. we've contacted the social workers there to do a safe and well check and things like that. So, yeah we've had a better reach because of our digital offer we wouldn't definitely be able to access them all if we didn't have that now and we were able to do that put it in place very quickly during covid which i am grateful for for, for one thing because otherwise we'd have had to jump through many many, many hoops to get that in place yes absolutely <laughs> and you know reading the chat health impacts report is phenomenal mm-hmm. it's phenomenal have you have you got chat health in your area yet selena yes yeah yes, we've had it since oh, 2016 it. yeah 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 and I think that whole digital offer, but, you know, if you look at that impacts report, it's astounding how many young people and parents and carers and school nurses and professionals have had that ability to have that communication and through another additional enhancing platform. What are the students saying about the digital offer then, Sam? Yeah, again, varied across the country and from the different trusts we work with. I've worked within a service that had chat house for probably the last five, six years and really noticed how it really does help to bridge the gap when you can't actually be there to see a young person, but to be able to give them some signposting, to know that they, there is somebody always that, you know, there's always a number, there's always something they can contact, something they can do. And I think it, it leaves you 
you feeling a, a little bit safer as a practitioner, knowing that you've got this digital offer behind you, supporting you in, in your face-to-face role as well? It's interesting you said that, Sam, because, you know, a digital offer should never and shall never replace a face-to-face yeah. contact. And you talked about that being an, an additional asset. Yeah. It's to support, to support what we do. And I think that's really important. It's definitely needed. We are living in more of a digital world and I think we need to make sure that that's there. But yeah, like you say, there's definitely no replacement for face-to-face. We were very fortunate to be involved with um, the school nursing in the times of COVID research study during COVID. The school nurses were very keen to share their views and that will be revisited because it'll be interesting. I think some of those views will have changed because it was very new. It was very threatening, very scary. Talking to children and attending ICPCs and strap meetings through a laptop on top of a washing machine for some school nurses because it was the only confidential space they could find in the house because our homes were not built for confidential office conversations and you know when it's safeguarding we absolutely have to have that offer so it was very scary nervous times wasn't it for the workforce and it isn't all wonderful you know there are definitely uh, things emerging from that study and and from other local practitioner intelligence that you know not having your eyes on that child or young person that face-to-face contact the body language the contextual safeguarding of where they live and exist and 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 their life that home visit where you can do that 360 scan of the horizon and all your expert skills can pick up on the the good and the not the not so good on the strengthening factors and the assets and the not so good strengthening so you know it's not the be all and end all but certainly there is room for it and it's still anecdotal um but we are hearing from some services and indeed from some of our social work colleagues that some of our families who perhaps have been less able to engage in the past are finding the digital offer a means through which they're happier to engage so we had a case story last week that we were having a conversation around where the family is notorious and um, doesn't often engage with services but feels having the camera off and speaking to that room of professionals quite intimidating room often for some of our families and having their voice heard through good chairing and not having to eyeball some of those people, they're finding more comfort. And so certainly it's not the only story we've heard that there appears to be that medium for some of our families and some of our children and young people could offer some good um, opportunities. So I think it's one to, to, to keep an eye on it, isn't it? So is there anything else that we need to be talking about in terms of safeguarding and school nursing? What else do we need to be thinking about? Are we clear on what our role is? Do we need a rethink? We need to have professional curiosity and courage and bravery. Mm -hmm. What else is there? I think it's just that really, isn't it? It's really defining what our role is within safeguarding. I think that's the key issue for us. It's so varied. It's so varied from region to region about what what our role is within safeguarding. We can't expect other professionals and families to know what it is that the school nurse does if we haven't actually made sure that this is what we're sticking to and this is the landmark for school nursing. So I think for us, it's about the role, defining the role for me. What's happened about supervision, safeguarding supervision? Is that still strongly in place? I know obviously during COVID we struggled, didn't we, for obvious logistical reasons and and practical reasons because there were a lot of staff around. But is that still in place? Is that still happening? For myself, 
I still get regular safeguarding supervision. I have a named safeguarding nurse in the area that I can contact ad hocly as well if I've got any concerns or worries as well as the single point of contact for, for safeguarding. So there's always somebody that I can speak to if I need to. Fantastic to hear because that was one of the things from the study that became apparent and why we set up our quarterly safeguard in the safeguarders webinar was that, you know, we don't realise, do we, that informal peer supervision we have on a day-to-day basis when we're face-to-face. That little cup of coffee, that little nudge, that looking over the desk at somebody's, you know, screen, sharing that, throwing out an idea. Like you said, Sam, no no, no questions, uh, uh, daft questions, having that safety. Um, and all that was ripped away from us, wasn't it? I think safeguarding supervision has continued and yes. is still in place. But I think that, you know, that all that working from home, we lost that brief and boundary that, you know, that corridor talk to check they're yes. OK. Um, and also those boundaries between work and home were not a pleasant place. No. You know, you walked from a conference to going in and sorting out your child next door who was being home, you know, work having their education at home so those boundaries stopped and I think that I mean I I can say certainly for me you know I used to drive to work and that time to drive to and work was my reflection time my time to decompress yes and I lost that and I and I missed it I'm back now but um you know and 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 I work in beautiful Derbyshire so driving through those beautiful places lovely you know so it is that you know that that time for you but it's also about what supervision is there out of the safeguarding arena so that that clinical supervision you know that psychological place for you to be able to have a reflective space and I think that that's the bit that's squeezed not so much the safeguarding Safeguarding. yeah yeah I think and that's definitely what we're hearing again across the UK that areas have really strived to get back to safeguarding supervision but services have been squeezed and some things are being squeezed and yet it's imperative isn't it if we're safeguarding others you know we need to safeguard guard ourselves and you know we've talked haven't we about the complexity and I think the lateness that cases are, are coming to us and where we're getting involved because of lack of services because of demand on services because of cost of living crisis because of financial pressures so you know one of the things we need to be really in my opinion really Really hot on is self-care and you're right Susie that mm-hmm. the clinical supervision the safeguarding supervision the management supervision and the actual interactive with you human beings is all part isn't it of that self-care I think sometimes we think of yoga which obviously plays a part mm-hmm. and a nice chamomile tea which obviously plays a part but actually it's the it's the humanity isn't it and you're right the the curse of being a a, a school community nurse is all the traveling you have to do and the fighting for parking spaces and the access security codes for numerous schools and colleges and social care and police and but the blessing is the drive isn't it it's the drive it's the to and the fro and like you said Susie that um, decompression that reflection the loud music on the shaking it off and and the refreshing isn't it of that thanks very much to our wonderful school nurses to Selena to Susie and to Sam and to all the S's here talking about safeguarding thank you very much thank you thank you thank you that was school nursing uncovered please listen out for more conversations in this podcast series which cover mental health gender identity safeguarding and more and remember to follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss the upcoming episodes